0: Please look in your bulletins and you'll see the passage this morning from Romans chapter 5. Or if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. We're going to remain standing in honor of God's Word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to your people this morning. Thank you for how it speaks to us, each one of us today, exactly where we are, everything we've gone through uh, this week, and we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would come and minister to each one of us as we worship you and as we receive your revelation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Um, So this is a passage that's got, um, uh, you know, you've got your faucet at home, you've got some some of the faucets just have the one thing on the, the one knob, but some faucets have the hot water, and some faucets have the cold water, and if you've got a really good, you know, water heater, you've got really hot water, and then on those winter days, you've got really cold water, and uh, this passage sort of runs hot and cold. Um, it's got some wonderful things to say about our joy, and it's also got some very humbling, sobering uh, things to say about our condition, apart from being renewed and, and being... Uh, made part of God's new creation. So we're going to start with talking about how Christ died for the ungodly, and that's, uh, uh, that's fantastic that, that Christ would die for us, but you know, we have to reckon with that whole ungodly part of that equation. But once we do, then we can see how, how remarkable it is that God loved the world that much. And when we soak in that, uh, we get some stuff to rejoice about, um, as we're going to see. But I want to start with this this whole notion that Paul's bringing forward here in a lot of different ways for, that I count um, at least, where Paul's bringing to relief and highlighting this fact that Christ died not for good people. He didn't die for good people. He died for the ungodly. And that's remarkable. So um, here you've got kind of the world against God and um, look at verse 6 where Paul says while we were still weak verse 8 Paul says while we were still sinners verse 10 Paul says while we were enemies um, and then he talks about Christ dying for the ungodly uh, weak sinful enemies ungodly uh, quite a, a combination to be sure let me just walk through this for a second the Bible says that we're weak. Uh, some of your passages, uh, the NIV, for instance, says powerless. So um, to, uh, to the average person, for the Bible to say that you're weak, you're powerless, we go, okay, I'm not a, I don't like to admit that I'm weak. I don't like to admit that I'm powerless. But okay, for the sake of integrity and authenticity, I can admit I, I fall short you know, and I don't have all of the power to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and I don't have the power to not do the things that I don't want to do, you know, and I'm inconsistent, and I mess up, and, and so that makes me, you know, agree to that biblical criticism, you know, of my human nature. I'm weak. I'm powerless, and most of the world would say, okay, you would run into an ego, egomaniac or two, you know, who would say, no, I got it all down, um, Paul goes further. So that's verse 6, while we were weak. Then verse 8, while we were sinners, still sinners. And then, you know, a lot of, a lot that's in me, probably in you, certainly in the world, goes, I really bristle at the word sinner. I don't want to admit that I'm a sinner. I don't want to admit that I'm in that category of people, um, sinful people you know, really bad people, whatever you want to describe it. Um, I like to think of myself as a pretty nice guy. I think the world likes to think of itself as pretty nice people. We spend a lot of money and a lot of energy and a lot of focus uh, culturally, academically, trying to make the case that people are pretty good, right? We we need some help along the way. We need self-help. We need you know, inspirational posters and memes and everything to just kind of bring out the good in us. But at the, at the core, if you keep scratching, there's good there, right? So we bristle at the Bible saying, you know, no, in fact, we're, we're sinners. Um, And then uh, it gets, the news gets a little worse. Verse 10 says that actually it's so bad that we're enemies. God says we're enemies. And now the world would say, look, that's just going too far. Um, that's like the person who's trying to really make their point, trying really hard to make their point, and they end up exaggerating the truth, right? Come on. How can I be an enemy of God? I'm a good person. I pay my bills. I try to do the right thing. You know, I get good grades. I try to not tell, the, tell lies. I know I mess up, but come on, really an enemy of God? How is, how is that possible? Well, all right. I just want to, if you're new here, let me, let me back up and just say um, I'm not here to convince you that any of this is true, but I do want to let you know, at least biblically, what, what is the Bible saying about human nature apart from the work of the Holy Spirit to make us new? And then you can agree with that or not, but I do want you to know what, what does the Bible say? And especially if you contrast, um, you can see in your bullets, and there's this break between verse five and verse six. I'm not sure the break's very helpful, uh, where the where the translations uh, switch the paragraph. But there's this parallel that Paul wants us to see, uh, a parallel of thought between um, part of verse five and verse six, and then verse eight. So, follow me here. Where in verse five? It says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. So Paul mentions God's love. And then you go to verse 6, and it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Right. So you get this mention of God's love, our condition that we were weak, and then who does Christ die for? The ungodly. Now jump to verse 8. And you get the same pattern. God shows his love for us, there's his love, in that, here's our condition, while we were still sinners, you know, while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, and then who does Christ die for? Christ died for us. And that makes these two terms, the end of verse 6 and the end of verse 8, synonyms. They mean the same thing. The ungodly means us. I don't want you to miss that. Uh, the Bible doesn't puff us up and flatter us with a bunch of empty stuff, empty flattery. Uh, it tells the truth about us. And the reason why um, we're considered ungodly or enemies of God or sinners is not to just rub our noses in it, but, to, but like a good doctor, to give us an accurate diagnosis so that we can look for the right cure. Um, here's another description of human nature apart from God's intervention. In Psalm 36, Uh, we read that there is no fear of God before um, his eyes. So the psalmist is talking about the average person in the world living independently of God, right? I mean, there would be no fear of God in that person's eyes. There's no fear of God before his eyes, for in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. He's so convinced himself, and maybe others are propping up that uh, mirage that You know, he can't see his sin, he can't repent of his sin, certainly. Um, He's believing all the good press and not taking the time to look for the constructive criticism. And this is the person, you know, uh, that the world, the average person in the world, living independently of God. But I left off the beginning of the verse. The beginning of Psalm 36, verse 1 says, An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. So biblically, who's a wicked person? A wicked person would certainly... You know, that title, it's not politically correct, but we would certainly say that the people who are like in, in, in prison serving a life sentence, they've done something really bad and we'll put them in the wicked category, but us? Come on, really? Why would, why would the Bible say that we, apart from God's work in our lives, would be classified as wicked? Well, because there's no fear of God before our eyes. Because we don't take what the Bible says is sin seriously and we just kind of go along thinking it's God's job to forgive he's going to do his job I'm going to do my job I'm going to try to be decent but I'm not going to take my sin seriously Um, there's no fear of God before his eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or even hate his sin that's a wicked person biblically I know that culturally that's not what we would say but biblically that's that's what wickedness is Telling God to just do his thing and I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to live independently of God. I'm not going to fear him. not going to worship him. Not going to certainly not going to revolve my life around him, which is contrary to how the Bible describes human life as it's designed to be. It's designed to revolve around our creator, our redeemer, our king, and our, our Lord. So that's why I'm calling this section, you know, the world against God, um, that there's this This independence, this failure to acknowledge God's lordship, Um, we don't want him to call out our stuff. We don't want to be accountable to him. And we take those labels like, you know, weak, um, sinful, godless, and we go, come on, that's over the top. Um, But that's not the only problem. It's not just that humanity uh, left to itself is against God, but God responds to that, and therefore God is against the world. Uh, in your outline, you see I've got this little, you know, v uh, like a like a court citation, like a case citation. Um, so the the you could read that God versus the world. You know, like Roe v. Wade, Roe versus Wade. Uh, legally, case citation has a lot, has some different expressions. In England, they don't say um, Roe v. Wade; they would say Roe against Wade. And even in some American courtrooms, they'll use against instead of versus. Um, but when you start to look at these the reality of, of, of you know, judicial cases and you start seeing the ways that these things are listed, when you have uh, a plaintiff against a defendant, you know, somebody in maybe a civil court or whatever, somebody is suing another person. You know? So you've got Jones against Smith, Jones versus Smith, and you go, oh man, that looks like a mess. But then you go to criminal court and you start seeing things like the Commonwealth of Virginia versus so-and-so you know, um, and then you go, wow, now the power of the state is against someone, and that's rather sobering. Or you get to the United States versus so-and-so. How would you like to be the defendant in a criminal case where it's the United States against you? What if it said God versus God? You. In England, um, their case when it gets to the national level, case law reads "R." You know, the word, the letter "R," period, stands for Rex, King, or Regina, Queen, King or Queen versus the defendant. God versus Daily. God versus Daily. There was a time when that, that was true for me, up until, you know, I was 18 years old and right out of my freshman year of college, and I, I ran up the white flag of surrender and I said, all right, God, you win. But up to that point, he was against me. I'll explain more about that later, but let me ask you, have you ever been a defendant in a, in a civil case or a criminal case? I think some of you probably have probably at least been a defendant in a civil case, um, but Probably more of you have at least been threatened with a lawsuit. And that's happened to me once. And uh, I got the phone message uh, on my voicemail. I didn't recognize the number. I let it go to voicemail. This guy left me a long message just basically threatening to sue the pants off of me. And I knew who it was. And I knew he had the the capacity and the means and a motive. Whether or not he was going to do it, I, I I didn't know. But all I know is that it scared me to death. That was just a civil thing, right? Just one person against me. What about the state or the the nation? or What about God versus me? So I, i tell you what happened, though. When I got that message, I was scared. I was anxious. I was upset. And the first thing that I did when I became aware that that was a possibility is I looked for help. I called my, my buddy, um, Don, in Charlottesville, and I said, um, all right, so what do you do? And they, the seminary didn't prepare me for this. <laughs> what do I do? And he said, all right, here's, uh, here's an elder, um, one of the elders at Trinity Presbyterian in Charlottesville. Call him. Uh, he's a lawyer, and he understands this stuff. And so I did. I called this guy, and he didn't know me from Adam, but he he talked to me and walked me through, and he said, you know, you're, it's going to be all right um, if he does sue you, uh, you know, he's not going to win, uh, based on the facts. So, but I was scared, and until I talked to that guy, uh, I I was very anxious. And then I, when I had reassurance that it was going to be okay, then my anxiety you know ratcheted down, and I, I was okay. But let's just let's just not leave the fact that there's this reality that in our um, enmity against God, God God responds, you know, and he's got his own case against us, and the prophets talk about this, and they even call witnesses to the stand. Uh, Jeremiah does this in chapter 2, where um, Jeremiah says, be appalled, O heavens, at this, and, and be shocked, be utterly dismayed, declares the Lord, for my people have forsaken me. This is, this is God calling us out. My people have forsaken me, and I'm calling you witnesses, and it's God versus the world, right? And God, God's, um, I mean, in, in 1 John 2, God says don't love the world or the things of this world, and, you know, here's why. Because the things of this world and the way the world operates and its mindset is contrary to God, and God responds to the world. And that's why here in Romans 5 we read about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not his temper tantrum. The wrath of God is his perfect righteousness aligned against sin. It won't tolerate it. It's going to prosecute it. And so you see elsewhere in Romans, Paul's talked about the wrath of God. In chapter 1, verse 18, it's the wrath of God's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, right? God's anger, God's... um, Um, God's own enmity is focused, and it's deliberate, and it's righteous. It's against unrighteousness. Uh, Go to chapter 2 in Romans, as we've already seen in our, uh, our journey so far. It says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so, you know, God is against a hard heart. God is against a, uh, an impenitent heart, a heart that won't turn back toward him and insists on going its own way. And God says a, he has a reaction to that. Uh, later on in chapter 2, he says, For those who are self-seeking, don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. Um, so what if God's wrath is against you? What if, what if God really has this V in between his name and your name? Who would you call? Would you call Marks and Harrison? And tell God you mean business? Can I tell you that would be stupid? You, you need a real defense attorney. <laughs> you need an advocate before the Father. You need one who's gonna stand in your place. And, um, and you'd expect with this whole dynamic of the world against God and God against the world, you would expect for God to just, because he was so angry at the world that he bulldozed the whole project and sent everyone to hell, right? You'd expect that to be the conclusion. But you get to the Gospel of John, you know, chapter 3, and you read instead of God was so angry at the world that he bulldozed the whole project and sent everyone to hell, instead you read God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, which is it? God just said don't love the world. God said he's against the world, and now you know we're reading that God loves the world. And furthermore, in the next verse, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We read in this passage in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, at the cross, what we, what we see, what's on display is, is wrath and love. What you need to know is that when God made us, um, like last week we were looking at that glass of water, when he made us, we were pure, we were good, we were holy, we were beautiful, we were the way God designed us to be. Sin enters the picture and we turn away from God. And that corrupts us, it pollutes us, all throughout us, it's inside us. Inside us. It's It's not the circumstances that make us sinful, it's our hearts that make us sinful. And so... He didn't stop loving us. You know, you, you get what it feels like to be really, really mad at somebody that you love. They're not contrary. So God always loved us. We turned our back on him, and yeah, he responds to that. There is a relational dynamic here, and he gets angry at that. But he didn't stop loving us, and that's why he sent his son. God kept loving the world. He loved us when we were still sinners, when we were still enemies, and so on. And so at the cross, you see this picture of God's love for us in sending his son, and you also see a picture of his anger because all of his wrath for our unrighteousness was poured out upon Jesus. That's what's so terrible about the cross, how much it cost God. God was willing to pay the price. God the Son was willing to step in and take our place, be our advocate, be our defense. But it's not the only dynamic of love and anger that you see. You see it from heaven's perspective, and that's why on the front of the bulletin and I've got that uh, image from Salvador Dali. I think that's beautiful. That he, the way that um, Salvador Dali imitated a drawing from a, one of the mystics named Saint John of the Cross was the first evidence of first artistic evidence of somebody depicting the cross from above. You know, looking down on sort of the top of Jesus, and and, and really from God's perspective. And Dolly borrowed that image from St. John of the Cross and made this painting where you see the love of God, which was willing to go to a cross, has always been above the earth. It's always been for the world. you got this little image of a lake and a mountain and even a boat, a fisherman, you know, on the bottom. God's always loved the world. But he could not ignore sin. And in his righteousness, he punished it in Jesus. But the, but the other picture of love and wrath at the cross is from the world's perspective, where... Because we so much hated God's sentence and criticism, you know, of how nice we think we are. We killed him, right? I mean, that's what we did. We just yelled crucify him and let's just rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. So you get this picture of the world's anger at God, undiluted, undistilled, and, um, and just full of, of, of venom. Um, and you see a picture of the, the world's love for the world. The world's love for itself. It wants to do what it wants to do, in love with itself, narcissistic, you know, egocentric, all that business. And that's what the cross demonstrates for us. God's love and his anger, but also the world's love for itself and anger at God. So when, when we read about the cross, when we read about John three sixteen. What we're talking about is such a remarkable love, that God would love even his enemies. That's why B.B. Warfield uh, writes that world in John 3.16, the word world is not here a term of extension so much as a term of intensity. Its primary connotation is ethical. And the point is, of its employment is not to suggest that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it all, but that the world is so bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it at all, and much more love to love it as God loved it when he gave his son for it. So God loves us even in our sin, and I think the question for us who receive that love is can we learn to love the way God does? If if what's remarkable about the love of God is not so much its extent but its depth, can we learn to love the same way? We're told that in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you've responded to that love, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, then we have to ask ourselves, what kind of love are we demonstrating? Do we love our enemies? If you only love those who love you back, Jesus would say, what good is it? Even, you know, the world does that kind of love. The world gets that love, practices that love. But godly love loves those who are hard to love. And so this is the real school of love. And, I, you know, we, we, we toss it off and we don't like it and we complain about it. But when you are encountering somebody who's difficult to love, God's teaching us how to really love. When somebody acts like an enemy toward you, what do you do? Do you punish them? Do you go off on them? Give them a piece of your mind and take your pound of flesh, right? That's fun. That's what we like to do. And instead, you know, what Jesus demonstrates is laying down your life for your enemy, offering forgiveness to your enemy, loving your enemy, not punishing them, not condemning them, but trying to reconcile with them. And this happens all over the place. It happens at work. What happens to your boss who's acting like an enemy toward you? Do you go and you talk about him behind his back to everybody else? You know, what a terrible man, terrible woman, awful person to work for. Oh, this is terrible. I mean, do you go around slandering them or do you love them? you try to figure out how to serve them? Do you try to figure out how to do honor to them? That's, that's, what, that's what hard love looks like, and that's the love that the gospel shows us. And it's the kind of love we've got to practice in our relationships, our friendships. You know, when your friend just disses you and does something that really hurts your feelings... Maybe even deliberately, do you just write them off? Or do you go and try to be reconciled? You try to love that person who's acting like your enemy. Um, you know, How about in marriages? How do you treat your spouse when they hurt your feelings? How do you treat your spouse when they're insensitive? How do you treat your spouse when they forget stuff? How do you treat your spouse when, you know, you fill in the blank, when they've really gotten under your skin, do you write them off, punish them, yell at them, give them the silent treatment? Or do you love them? Like Jesus loves us when we were his enemies. Uh, it can be true of your kids, it can be true of your parents, it can be true, you know, all, all directions, all dynamics, relationally. How do you love somebody when they're not making it easy for you? Well, the gospel shows us how to love. And when we do that kind of love, we show the world gospel love. Jesus said that you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So that you may show the world as sons and daughters of your heavenly father what your heavenly father's love looks like. It's Pretty cool. And this gives us something to rejoice about. The fact that God so loved us, even when we were against him, gives us a lot of things to rejoice about. Paul mentions three things here in this passage. Peace with God, being reconciled to God, being saved by God. And uh, let, me, let me walk through these real quick. So let's start with peace. Uh, God gives us his peace. The anger is gone. The enmity is gone. There's no V, no more V in between my name and God's name. The V is gone. So there's no more conflict, no more wrath. It's been finished at the cross. He suffered for you. You're justified by his blood. And therefore, Paul's application of that in verse 3 is that not only that, but you can rejoice in your sufferings. God God isn't against you. The person who's not convinced that the gospel has reconciled them or given them peace, let, let me focus on peace, A person who's not convinced that God has taken away his anger for our sin, there's no more V in between my name and God's name, a person who's not convinced that Jesus really did show me the full extent of his love, when they suffer, guess what happens? They go, oh no, Uh, God's angry at me. God's calling me to to pay for whatever I've done in the past because their expectation is that the evidence of God's love is he's going to make things easy for me. The evidence of God's love is he's going to answer all my prayers for nice things and good things and smooth sailing. And then when bad things happen and the sailing isn't smooth, they question God's love. But what is the evidence of God's love? And how do we know that he's at peace with us? The cross. That's the evidence of his love not our circumstances, not how good things are going, not your bank account, you know, not your love life, you know, not your friendships, not any of that stuff. It's the cross. That's how we know that we're at peace with God. So if you don't have that peace, you're never gonna be able to, to rejoice in suffering. But if you do have that peace, suffering comes along, and you go, all right, God is calling me to a deeper relationship with him. I used to be weak while we were weak, while we were powerless. God came to us, and now he's building us up and strengthening us. And I'll be the first to admit that I don't go yippee when suffering comes, but, but we can't agree, can't we, with verse 4, that when suffering comes, we get endurance, we get character, we get hope, that God is strengthening those things in us that were weak once upon a time, that were flabby, that were spiritually, you know, were just atrophied. And God's strengthening those things now, giving us some spiritual muscle, helping us to endure and be strong disciples. You can rejoice in that. We can also rejoice because we're reconciled to God. Verse 2 says we obtain this access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we'll talk about this word access for a second. The joy here is being... um, given access to God, being being able to enter into and share in the the, the glory of God. To, think about his throne room. Going through the doors into his throne room where there's glory, beauty, majesty on display. And Paul says that we can we can rejoice about that. That's a good thing. Now What what I wanna stress is that we're not just rejoicing that we've got access into his presence. We wanna rejoice in the fact that we have him, right? But when we say that we've been reconciled to him, this is more than just that there's no more conflict. This means that we actually are in a relationship of friendship with him. There's a relationship that was once broken and it's been restored. And when we come into his presence, we're coming into his presence to have him. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's talking about reconciliation with God. He says that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. There's that word counting that we've talked about before that Paul uses a lot, where God takes our sins and counts them against Jesus, and he takes the goodness of Jesus and counts it toward us. And here he says that God's not counting our trespasses against us, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for God, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And with that in mind, let me just say to any of you who are new or just trying to figure out what, what is the gospel? What do Christians believe? What is the church about? I know there's confusing messages out there, but at its core, the gospel is God reconciling us to himself, bringing us back into a relationship that we were designed to have with him in creation, and we will have with him for an eternity, and through Jesus, we can have with him now. So if if, if you don't understand all these dynamics, I would love to talk to you after the service and just close that loop for you. What does it mean to believe in Jesus, to have your sins taken away, to be given the smile of God in exchange, to have the V removed from between God's name and your name. Talk to me after the service. And lastly, just this whole thing about being saved by God. I love what Paul wraps up in verse 11, saying, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul's, Paul's talking about that joy in God as a result at the end of verse 10, of being saved by his life. And earlier in verse 9, he'd been repeating himself when he talked about being saved by him uh, from the wrath of God. And so the result of salvation is fill in the blank. Why does God save us? Why does he go through all of this? What's the point? Think back to Israel and Egypt and Exodus, and Moses before Pharaoh, and at least seven times that I count where Moses is instructed to tell Pharaoh, on behalf of God, let my people go, and then there's there's a reason for that. Save my people, Moses, so that they may worship me, so that they may be with me not do stuff for me, not get stuff from me, but simply be with me in worship to enjoy that relationship and that presence where we simply rejoice in God. What does it mean to rejoice in God himself? It means to agree that God is our joy. He's our reward. The point of having access to him, the point of getting into that throne is not to enjoy the glory and just see all the beauty and so on, but to be with him who is glory and beauty. When's the last time you felt that joy? I I admit, it can can be flighty. A lot of times we're just kind of plodding along. But look, if we're not entering into joy, there's a reason. The reason why we would not be rejoicing in in his love is, well, maybe because we're not receiving his love the way we ought to. And how do we receive his love? You've got to be with him. How do you receive anybody's love? You spend time with them. So, you know, if it's been a while since you, or if, you, if you're reading this language of rejoicing in God, and you're going, I don't get that, that's probably because you're not spending a lot of time with him. And for those of you who do understand rejoicing in God, you, you're, you're probably investing in what the older saints have called spiritual disciplines, or you can call them spiritual habits, or just discipleship, of spending time in his word, to just really let it speak to you. Spending time in silence and in prayer, just not so much rallying off your list, your prayer list, but really just listening, letting the Spirit speak to you. Turning off all your gadgets, getting away from stuff, and just taking time to be with Jesus. There's, you know, the Word, there's prayer, there's worship. You're doing it right now. Just, you know, make it a habit, commit to this. Be reminded of the gospel week in, week out, and be with him. John Bennett sent me a a link. Uh, It was an interview that um, beautiful, beautifully edited and put together um, account of a relationship between Eugene Peterson, uh, who, uh, if you know him at all, you probably know him because he's the 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 man behind the paraphrased version of the Bible called The Message uh, that I've used before, and uh, and he's written a bunch of other stuff. A lot of it um, is his audience is pastors because he was a pastor, and I think he's fantastic. So there's Eugene Peterson, and then there's this interesting relationship that developed between him and a fellow most of you probably do know, and his name's Bono, lead singer for U2. And back in 2002, Bono, you know, does this little video message to Eugene Peterson saying, listen, I just read the account of the Psalms as you paraphrase them in the message, and they spoke so clearly to my heart. And um, and then there's this... Rolling Stone article that's written about YouTube about Bono and sort of you know spiritually what makes him tick and he references Eugene Peterson and then somebody comes to Eugene Peterson and says hey Bono is referencing you in Rolling Stone magazine and it's great because in this in this video Eugene Peterson just sort of says uh, who's Bono um, and, and when he talks about the thing developing, he says, I, I read about it, and or it was an article in Rolling Stones. Like he's just culturally naive, like a child. Uh, and and it and it convicted me, it convicted me about how worldly-wise I am, and how much I really want to have that simple, mature, deep spiritual maturity of Eugene Peterson who doesn't love this world or anything in it. This video you know, shows Eugene and his wife, Jan, I think is her name, just baking cookies for Bono as he comes to their house. And they have this great friendship now. God, God so loved the world that he gave his son. We're not supposed to love the world because the world would satisfy our hearts. We're supposed to love the Lord, because He satisfies our hearts and then teaches us to love the world the way we're supposed to love the world. Let's pray. Father, would you um, would you lead your people? Have mercy on us as we as we struggle to receive your love and to rejoice in your love and as we we seek to love the world properly, not, not to run away or retreat from the world, but also not to be enthralled by it. Lord, would you help us to love the world the way you love the world, sacrificially and from a deep posture of forgiveness and sympathy and compassion? Lord, would you make us a church where people really do see the, the nature and the, the depth of the love of God for us. Lord, we pray for those who are just trying to figure out how do they enter into an experience of that love and would you give them the grace of salvation through your spirit this morning. And Father, would you lead all of us um, to receive more and more of your love. We do want to pray uh, in particular for several families in our church rotation this morning. So we pray for.